Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... James Hunt. Uh, and me, Neil Alcock. Hello. Um, so yes, yeah, Seb couldn't be with us today because he's busy moving house, you know, from one end of the country to another. But we have a, I would say, a more than adequate replacement here this week. Uh, Neil, <laughs> you're joining us to discuss X-Men Apocalypse. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and, um, you know, why we should take your opinions so seriously? Well, more than adequate is uh, a more than adequate description of me, so thanks very much for that. Yeah, uh, who am I? I write a a blog that nobody reads called The Incredible Suit. Uh, It is largely James Bond-centric, but I do tend to go and see other films as well, so I will write about those and talk a load of nonsense. And I've uh, written some nonsense for other people like Empire Magazine and um, Film4.com and Virgin Media and... All those super sexy outlets that are not particularly fussy about who they have writing for them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've done you've done um, quite a few comic book movie reviews on there. Yeah, I guess so. I like uh, comic book movies generally. I'm not I'm not a kind of super comic book movie geek, but uh, I will go and see every kind of Marvel film, and I'll go and see all the. Uh, you know, I was looking forward to Batman versus Superman, even though it was complete shit. Uh, <laughs> you, get, you get the Disney checks, is what you're saying. Yeah, essentially, yeah. They, they come in. They're not as big as the ones that, like, Robbie Collin and Peter Bradshaw get, but <laughs> they tied me over. <laughs> is, is that because, you know, Disney is bribing them more, or is it because you don't, you, you know, you, you weren't, you weren't in totally in love with Civil War, were you? Um, no, I liked it. <laughs> I li- it was fine, you know, I came out of the cinema and I thought, yeah, that was fine. But I can't, I can't get super excited about those films. There isn't a single Marvel Cinematic Universe film that I've come out of and thought that was completely amazing. I very much enjoyed Iron Man three, and I very much enjoyed the first Avengers movie. Mm. Uh, and half of the rest, I've come out and thought well, that was fine, and the other half, like, nah, can't be bothered. Well, you did just name two of, I think, the three best ones at the very least. Few. So. You, I'm <laughs> guessing that you think the third is Guardians of the Galaxy. Am yes. I right? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't like that. Didn't like that one. Nope. Uh, Sorry. Poor, poor Chris Pratt. You know, it's not his fault. You know, we're, we're, I mean, you know, you are the incredible suit. You're known for your sartorial style. Was Chris Pratt's red jacket not doing it for you? Or uh, no, I thought he was very cool. I'm not really known for my sartorial style. It's just a stupid name that I thought of for my blog. Um, yeah, I, no, I think I, I like Chris Pratt a lot, and um, 
I thought his red jacket was great, I guess. <laughs> it was just <laughs> but, everything else was the issue. Yeah, it's just everything else that I didn't really enjoy very much. Okay, well, um, just before we get going properly with all the x meniness of this podcast and all of our regular features... Um, I wanted to let you guys know about, um, it's a first for the podcast, um, we are having a competition uh, which you can win prizes through. Um, this is really cool, we have partnered with the website Dark Bunny Tees, um, who make a range of spectacularly geeky um, pop culture t-shirts. I've got a bunch of them uh, myself just from being a customer um, throughout the years anyway. Um, And so I'm a a big fan of the site and delighted that we are able to uh, join with them here for a competition. And so it's going to be fairly simple to enter. By the time you guys are listening to this podcast, there will be a tweet pinned to the top of our Twitter feed, which all you will need to do is quote that tweet and tell us what your favourite design is on the Dark Bunny Tees website to enter the competition. Um, And it's as simple as that. So you just go to the Dark Bunny Tees website, have a look at their awesome t-shirts, tell us which ones are your favourite by quoting that tweet, and you'll have entered the competition. And um, the winners will win t-shirts from that website, which um, which is pretty awesome, which I think you'll all agree after you visit the site. They've got loads of geeky stuff. There is some Captain America Civil War t-shirts on there from fairly recently. There's some Punisher merch, some Deadpool stuff, some Daredevil stuff. It's loads of geeky superhero stuff specifically, which I think you guys will all like. In addition to that, we've also partnered with the website and we have a code that you can use if you're just using the website as a normal customer. If you enter Cinematic Universe at the till, you can get 10% off all orders on the website, which is pretty awesome as well. As far as we're concerned, Cinematic Universe, if you support Dark Bunny Tees through this competition, just by entering the competition, visiting the website, looking at their stuff, or buying stuff from the website and using that code, that obviously helps support this podcast as well. So we'd massively appreciate um, all of you entering this competition, trying to win some cool merchandise, um, uh, but but also uh, supporting the podcast at the same time. So hopefully it's a win-win situation. So just again... Go to our Twitter feed, which is at CU underscore podcast. Look for the tweet that is pinned to the top of our profile, which is about the competition. Quote that tweet. Tell us what your favourite Dark Bunny Tees design is, and you will be entered into the competition. But that's the competition stuff out of the way, and um, now we'll get into the podcast proper, which, of course, is about Brian Singer's 2016 movie, X-Men Apocalypse. But before we get to that, I'm going to ask James to explain a comic book concept as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this, James, is me not not understanding or not having any knowledge of anything that comes with Black Panther. Because we're seeing that movie being cast up now. You know, Lupita Nyong'o might be joining the cast. Michael B. Jordan, as the MCU continues to rehabilitate human torches. Um, <laughs> so what I want to know is, like, who could they be playing? Who are the, the villains and the sidekicks and the love interests in Black Panther's world that we should be watching out for? Ah, I mean, it's it's kind of tough. Like, when when I think of a Black Panther villain... The one that springs to mind is Claw, Ulysses Claw. Who is Andy Serkis already in the MCU. Yeah, like he's already shown up. So alternatively, there's maybe, there's a guy called Eric Killmonger, who's a sort of <laughs> warrior and, poli- yeah, well, exactly, warrior and, like, political genius. I guess Jessica Jones did a Killgrave, so if you can do a Killgrave, you can probably do a Killmonger. Yeah, the, and 
Iron Man didn't Ironmonger, so... That's true. Um, and then, like, the Man-Ape, but that seems problematic at best. The Man-Ape? Yeah, he's like a guy who wears a white gorilla outfit. Okay, so you would imagine that they would, at the very least, rename <laughs> that character if he, yeah. if he makes it in there? Yeah, I mean, you know, those are the big ones, and they're not very big themselves, so it's kind of... no, Like, no one springs to mind that they could... That, they could instantly use as a villain in a Black Panther film. Well, would any, would any of those make any sense for Michael B. Jordan, if he is indeed playing the villain? Not really. <laughs> is he one of those characters that just doesn't have a good rose gallery, so maybe they have to go off-comic or borrow from other characters and bring them over into his world? I would imagine that's the way they'll go. Like, no, there's no villain that springs to mind, but, I mean, if I was going to, if I was going to cast a villain in the Black Panther movie it would be Namor the Submariner because he's like he's got his own state and he's you know sort of regal as well and you know he's got a sort of vaguely elemental power set that could be interesting they've had interesting dealings in the comics like that would be the dream for me but at the same time I'm fairly sure he's not on the MCU slate at all, so... I would project ahead and say that might be kind of like a Black Panther 2 kind of thing. Yeah, if, they, if they've if they got the character, he could definitely turn up. Yeah, it doesn't seem like anyone's movie, quite but... sure about what the rights are for Namor, whether no. Marvel has them or not. What about I... Lupita Nyong'o then? Who who could she be playing? As far as I'm concerned, she is a shoo-in for Shuri, who is uh, the Black Panther's sister, and... Uh, you know, she's been the Black Panther in the past and ruler of Wakanda herself, so... Would she be then, like, a, kind of like a... Almost playing the role of, like, Evangeline Lilly did in... Uh, or or will do in the Ant-Man sequel, which is... Yeah. Uh, the female lead, but also, like, a super-powered person. Yeah, well, she might be more along the lines of, like, you should be king and I should be Black Panther. Like, that would be an interesting dynamic. Uh, what, like, antagonistic ally. Are there any other options? Yeah, it's possible she could be one of his bodyguards. Like, you saw in Civil War, he had that woman uh, who had a brief face-off with uh, the Black Widow. Who was great, yeah. Yeah, like, she was very striking for that one scene. And that, he, though, she was clearly one of his... Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to probably mangle the pronunciation, but okay. the the Black Panther has these, like, female bodyguards called the Dora Milaji, who are, they're a combination, they're like his betrothed wives and also his bodyguards, and they sort of hang out with him. Okay. If Lupita Nyong'o's not Shuri, I imagine she'll be, like, if she is being a love interest, it will be the head one of those. Neil, how does that sound to you? Were you were you intrigued by Black Panther after watching Civil War, or does any of that make you think a Black Panther movie would be any good? Uh, I'll be honest, you lost <laughs> me at Nemo the Submarine Man. Uh, <laughs> I did like Black Panther in, in Civil War. I thought he was a cool, cool dude. Uh, and I would go and watch a film about that character. But I kind of think that the the Marvel characters that are less well-known, tend to make for the more interesting films. Um, And, you know, Ant-Man and Thor and, I guess, Guardians of the Galaxy for some people, um, I think they're the more more interesting films than the Captain America films. (laughs) That's going to upset Joe. Well, I really like the first Captain America film, and while I like the sequels, I feel like the rest of the world likes them more than me. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go along with that. And I'm kind of, yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued by Doctor Strange coming up because yeah. I'm kind of enjoying 
reading a little bit of Doctor Strange in the comics recently. He seems like a, a character that you can do different things with. Um, similar yeah, I'd like character. to hope that I'd like to hope that the Doctor Strange film is really mentally ill because I think that it, it needs to go really weird and it needs to be bonkers and it needs to turn a lot of people off i'm very very happy if that's what happens <laughs> yeah I, I wonder whether marvel as well that they're gonna wonder whether they are taking with like a black panther or a captain marvel movie that they're taking enough of a risk with those films already being that they're their first films with female leads um non-white leads that there's stuff like doctor strange even though it's an unknown property just just go just go crazy with it because yeah they've got enough uh They've got enough familiar stuff that they can fall back on if those films don't work, I think. And how yeah. much money have they made from what they've made already? They're all right. A, a, a lot, Neil. <laughs> they're, doing, they're doing okay. It's only, by the end of this decade, something like eight of the top ten highest grossing films ever will be Marvel movies, I imagine. And the well, rest will a, just be whatever James Cameron makes. What a world we live in. <laughs> um, well, I don't know whether there's going to be many X-Men films knocking around that list, guys. Seems oh, a segue. There's a bit of a segue coming. <laughs> <laughs> so this seems like a good point to move into our spoiler-free section of the podcast. So we are going to we're going to talk X-Men Apocalypse now. Um, X-Men with- Apocalypse now. X-Men Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Would have been a better movie. Um, and um, <laughs> and after doing that for a small amount of time, we will launch into a full spoilery discussion, but we will flag clearly when that is happening. So what we'll do right now is listen to a trailer for the movie and we will be back with our spoiler-free thoughts. Means to destroy this world. We live in a world. Let's go to war. Everything they've built will fall. So, guys, what is what did you think of X Men Apocalypse? Is it your favourite X-Men movie ever? Or are you with the majority of critics who are kind of giving this kind of sniffy, two-star, disappointing reviews? Uh, I did not hate X-Men Apocalypse. Um, It's Bryan Singer's least good X-Men film. Very, very, by some, you know, long distance. Um, But I just didn't, you know, I I think I'd seen the two-star reviews. I didn't read any of them, but I saw that it wasn't getting very good reviews. And I went in there with fairly low expectations, and I didn't dislike it. I I really like the X-Men films generally. I'm not like a super X-Men film fan, but there's something about those films that I really enjoy, and I, I think you would have to go some way to make one that I actively dislike yeah there was it's full of nonsense there are so many plot holes in there and there's so many (laughs) things that you can pick up and complain about and say well that's rubbish that's just sloppy that's bullshit but i don't know it's kind of got this teflon coating on it for me that kind of all that stuff just slips off and i was like i had a really good time it's really fun it's too long and it's very silly but i just didn't really care i just had a good time well i wonder James, whether you would agree with that, because I, I mean, I've got no idea what you thought of the movie. We haven't talked about this at all since each of us saw it. I wonder whether, do you agree with that kind of thing, that the X-Men movies kind of have that surface level of, you know, there's an, there's enough that's interesting about the X-Men that it's difficult to make a really bad movie from them? Or is it 
could you potentially counterpoint that and say Brian Singer isn't is woefully underusing the pieces that he has? I I I mean I fall very much between two stalls on this because I think what he's doing with the movies like he's clearly got something in his head and he's doing it well but it doesn't align with anything I like about the X-Men so I find it hard to enjoy the films on that level. Are you approaching um, it from a comic, an X Men comics fan? Yeah, broadly, because like okay. the X Men were my entry into comics, and yeah, that's, into that's being your a, big. Yeah, into being a giant nerd. So, like, I just, I all I see are the decisions that I would have done differently, or I would have <laughs> liked to have seen differently. But at the same time, this, like, as I say, between two stalls, this movie pushed my comic fan buttons more than any other X Men film they've done. So oh. there were bits of it that I loved. And bits of it that I just thought were stupid. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think where I would place it in my overall rankings for X-Men films. I mean, it's hard to say. It would be a low three stars. And that's a, that's about as certain as I can be about the <laughs> sort of positioning of it. What, what do you reckon about, compared to what Neil said, in Brian Singer's X-Men movies? So there's X1, X2, Days of Future Past, and then this. Uh, I I liked him more than Days of Future Past. I think really? I prefer X2, but I haven't seen that for a long time. Days of Future Past is probably my, aside from maybe The Last Stand, it's probably my least favourite X-Men film. Yeah, well, the context then, James and I didn't like Days of Future Past as much as a lot of other people. We haven't covered that on the podcast yet. I mean, it's going to be fun when we get to it, because Seb loves it. Um, and we're a bit. I think I'm a bit more lukewarm, and you're because I'm. I'm certainly not. It's my. It's not my least favorite. Um, but Neil, I mean, you're you, for you as well. You you quite like X Men Origins Wolverine, don't you? <laughs> I wondered how long it would take you to bring this up. Where are we? <laughs> we're like eighteen minutes into the podcast. Fifteen. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, I think this is on a for me. I mean, it's kind of pointless to talk about rankings because it's so individual. But yeah. um, for me, X2 is probably the joint best superhero film ever, with along with Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. Mm. Um, <laughs> I was really hoping you'd say that. <laughs> I uh, really like the first X-Men film as well. I think that's a really good superhero film. And as uh, I think we can all agree that that kind of rebooted or restarted the whole kind of superhero genre that we are now still in um so i think that did a really great job and it's a really great film by itself i really like days of future past so they are probably my top three x-men films and then i might say that x-men apocalypse is after that and x-men origins wolverine which i know we're going to have a massive row about um (laughs) i would probably put next you see i um after revisiting x-men origins wolverine on the podcast um I think there's interesting stuff in the first hour of that movie. I think there's interesting ideas that it kind of loses um, midway through. Um, And when I was looking at my X-Men rankings um, and kind of trying to figure out where I'd put Apocalypse here, um, I I was kind of coming back to it. I was trying to figure out where to put Apocalypse. And basically, as far as I'm concerned, it's in the bottom three or four. And for me, that bottom three or four includes X-Men, The Last Stand. Is that the name of it? The Last Stand? The yeah. terrible one. The third one. The one, that this, <laughs> the one that this movie makes a joke about midway through, but also doesn't realise that it's making a joke about itself at the same time. Um, and um, also down there, the two Wolverine films. Um, and 
and then this. Um, and I think, I mean, I think this, it's very close to being bottom for me. I, I just because, <laughs> and, and maybe you guys can talk me out of this during the course of the podcast, but I just don't know what this movie is about. You've got, you go back to the Brian Singer's early X-Men films and you've kind of got the the mutantness of these characters kind of being um, a metaphor for uh, gay rights or civil yeah. rights. Um, you've got the whole powers as puberty thing when you're focusing on um, a character like Rogue. Um, the Wolverine films um, at least feel like they've got a through line. They're, they're trying to achieve something, whether that is as boring as telling something, telling us how Wolverine came to be Wolverine and uh, exploring the like dual animal human side of that mutant. Yeah, um, and also the kind. Of, I think they they explore a little bit the concept of immortality and how, how that affects yes. someone who has to watch their loved ones die and so on and so forth. Yeah, and then you've got kind of you've got the the stuff going through. Uh, all of Brian Singer's movies um, and First Class, which is the relationship between Charles and Eric and those dueling ideologies. And I feel like this film doesn't have any of that. Like, it changes Magneto's motivations so so he's driven by something else. So I I kind of feel like it loses that key Charles and Eric stuff. Um, It doesn't spend enough time focusing on any of the characters individually to have a big arc and then because everyone is so diverse there's uh, is spread out in kind of different teams and here there and everywhere it never feels like i was really rooting for a team to coalesce or anything like that and then the apocalypse stuff at the middle of it but middle of it i just didn't he was just a guy he was just a villain <laughs> and so I, I just i came out of the movie going well what what did brian singer think he was trying to say with this movie See? and i think it just might just be that this is the movie where the X-Men were in the 80s. So I was talking to Mike Leader after the screening and I came out and said to him, like, I'm sure Joe is going to dislike this movie because it's not about anything. <laughs> like, it's... There's no sort of underlying theme. It's just the one where they fight Apocalypse. And Apocalypse is... Like, his motivations don't have any themes or ideology that competes with the main character's of the franchise, like the characters that are there just sort of turn up, get an introduction and hang around in the background for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like at least days of future past had this kind of fight over sort of mystique's loyalty. And, you know, the characters were trying to save in their own way. They were trying to like, you know, bring her onto one side or the other. And that's, you know, that was at least a plot you could get behind and get invested in, whereas this one was just, a guy is destroying the world, will they stop him? It just felt really, really generic. And I, I found myself frustrated that there were... Because I actually, watching the first hour, I was like, this is this is okay. I kind of I kind of like this thread, and I like this thread, and I'm, I'm enjoying the scenes. It seems like the X Men movies have tried to add a bit more humor. Um, I quite liked. <laughs> I quite like the tone. I like. I still like a lot of those performances. Um, I like a lot of the people they have in that cast. Um, and it was. It was more, more, more in the second hour. Where I was just going like, 
where is this going? Who? Wh- what? What are we building towards here? What? What is the central thrust of this story? And when it got to the final act, and I was like, I don't. I genuinely don't know which of these characters is going to be the one who steps forward and is like the kind of the key to everyone prevailing, and is going to, or like, or which part of the team is going to be crucial in taking down Apocalypse or, well, or even even which idea is going to be the thing that separates them from the villain like they yeah. they kind of briefly allude to like oh we're a team and you're just one guy and it's like well that's fine but you're not defeated by a team in the end yeah. I mean are we missing something Neil is there no uh, I don't think so <laughs> I, think, I, I would generally agree with everything you say I mean Days of Future Past had a really uh, great thing in it about there was this kind of social commentary about um, people in control. Uh, it was Bolivar Trask in that film, and he he was kind of um, breeding fear of mutants. And his um, his way of dealing with that was to introduce the Sentinels, and all that kind of happened. And that was there was some social commentary going on there, which I really liked. But that is kind of I, I could see that there was something Brian Singer was trying to say in Apocalypse about. I mean, quite cheesily and unoriginally, it was it was about how with great power comes great responsibility, uh, which I think we've probably heard before in superhero films. Mm. But <laughs> it was there. It was there in, uh, you know, this kind of hero worship of mystique that some of the characters have, and it was there in um, a kind of message to world leaders that you need to, just because you've got nuclear weapons, you know, you, you need to, I don't know... <laughs> be nice with them stuff like that it just kind of it was there but it was just got it just got buried under loads of special effects and explosions and uh, a very kind of convoluted storyline where all the characters got separated and brought back together and separated again and uh yeah it didn't quite gel as well as it has in the other films I mean, I would just compare that to Captain America's Civil War, which, I mean, even if you sat through that film and really didn't like it, there's no doubt that that question about how should these people, how should the world be dealing with power and responsibility is, Mm. you know, right there up front and characters talk about it. And even if it gets kind of left in the background, it's still a thing that's there throughout the film and you can never really forget about when you're watching it. Yeah, undoubtedly uh, Civil War dealt with that topic much more intelligently than apocalypse does Hmm. (laughs) i mean i i actually to speak about some of the stuff that i liked um i liked all i mean and this is probably why i liked like the first hour of the film i like i like the versions of all of the younger mutants that they introduced um particularly the ones that are hanging out at the um at xavier's school in the start so um cyclops gene gray Nightcrawler, Jubilee. Um, I liked those performances. I liked the idea. It felt like it didn't feel like that they were being rebooted. It felt like a versions of the characters that were consistent enough with the ones that we'd seen to not be distracting, but also that you could do interesting stuff with them when they were younger. Um, Even Sophie Turner as Jean Grey. Well, so I I um, thought her accent was um as dodgy as accents can get but i just i think she looks like a movie star and um you know uh, considering that brian singer likes to cast a lot of people not give them any lines and just look at how cool they look in cost in superhero costumes um i'm sure she could be fantastic in brian singer films for a decade to come i mean she she was my favorite part of the entire film to be honest 
Wow. I take it I take it you don't agree with that, Neil. <laughs> That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Um I, do, I, I don't really rate her in Game of Thrones, and I wasn't excited oh, really? when I found out she was playing Jean Grey. And I just, I'm not convinced that she... I mean, I think all of these uh, young actors who are kind of lumbered with the responsibility of playing younger versions of existing characters who have kind of, even though they've not had loads of films, they've kind of settled into the cultural psyche. I think they've got a, a tough job, and I do not envy them at all. But... <laughs> Um, I think that the guy who played Cyclops, Ty Sheridan, is it? Yes. He uh, didn't really bring anything to it. I know that James Marsden wasn't spectacularly kind of full of personality <laughs> or a, anything. but He's a boring character, though, isn't he? Cyclops? He is a boring yeah. character. But Jean Grey is not necessarily a boring character. And I just, I, I felt like um, Sophie Turner was not a particularly uh, interesting version of that character. I mean, I will just, I'll massively disagree with you on Sophie Turner in Game of Thrones. Um, when when I started watching Game of Thrones in kind of like season one, season two, um, I really didn't like her, found her distractingly bad. Um, but I think of all of the like younger actors, particularly on that show, she is the one that for me has grown in terms of like quality of performance over over the years that that show has been on the air. Like Maisie Williams was very good from the start, but I think Sophie Turner has kind of, blossomed as an actress throughout that show um and so that that maybe that's what splits is there is that i'm already kind of on board for her um but uh yeah i mean what kaiju smith Smith mcphee was fun um yeah um, i love just thriller jacket oh is that a spoiler that's not a spoiler that's not i'm sure it's production stills um, it was a shame that they introduced Jubilee or seemed to be implying through marketing that Jubilee was kind of one of, on <laughs> equal footing with all of those. And then so you have kind of like the one Asian character kind of part of the gang when they just want her to hang around. But as soon as anything needs doing, she has to go away. She doesn't even get named. I don't even remember I... her being in it. She, she the is the girl in the, in the bright yellow jacket. She goes, when they sneak off to the mall, she's with them. Did she go to the cinema? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and then when they get back to the mansion, she she hides behind the wrong rock and therefore gets left out the rest of the film. Yeah. Oh, Jubilee! I don't think she even gets to use her powers, does she? No, she doesn't. Doesn't get named. Doesn't get to use her powers. I'm very upset. Yeah. And then the horseman, um, apocalypses four horsemen. So you'll know from the marketing. This isn't a spoiler. There's Magneto, Storm, Psylocke. And Angel. Um, Psylocke and Angel maybe say two sentences between them over the course of the film. <laughs> and I just thought they were dreadful. <laughs> like, really, I don't understand. Really dreadful. <laughs> I don't understand why this super powerful mutant, like the, the first mutant who is all conquering and all powerful, would choose uh, three, including Storm, of the worst mutants ever. Like, he's just, he's like, I mean, what bad luck just to happen upon the three most useless mutants you could possibly find to kind of recruit to your cause. And he, I mean, well, I guess maybe, you know, at least if they were, like, interesting people, he could have held down a bit of a conversation, told them why he was doing what he was doing, what was motivating him to do this stuff. But they were too dull, so he didn't. Yeah, quite right. Um, yeah, I, and... Storm, I kind of, I liked the look of a young Storm, um, but Alexander Ship also doesn't get to do anything. It's weird, Brian Singer has done this, I mean, there's probably, all of the first three X-Men movies had 
were kind of guilty of doing this, of introducing characters from the comics who you hear people going, oh, I'm really excited to see this mutant because they're great in the comics. And then they turn up and you watch the movie and you go, oh, people people care about these. Because if, if, I, if I had no context of superhero movies, characters like Jubilee and Storm to an extent, definitely Psylocke, definitely Angel. I mean, Angel's one of the first... X-Men members, isn't he? Isn't he part of the original team, James? Yeah, in the comics. So he's like a really big character and they've done that they've done that character twice now in the movies, and you wouldn't you wouldn't have a clue without context that he was a character that had any importance in that universe. Mm. I think Storm has kind of suffered as well in these films. I think she comes across I haven't read the comics, so I don't know how great she is in the comics, but I've always found her irritating as a character because <laughs> I don't think kind of rustling up a cloud is is all that useful. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because in the comics she's like she's a very major presence. Like she was team leader for a while. Her powers are some of the strongest around, uh, and philosophically as well, she's very well defined as an X man who doesn't like to kill and doesn't like using her powers on other living beings. So, I oh, mean, so there's that's a lot... immediately more interesting. Yeah, there's a lot you can mine there, but they don't. That's a shame. I mean, I think I think what it comes back to for me with this film was it felt like it felt like Brian Singer didn't have any affection for these characters, like that they were all just things that he could throw into his movie to like make the story work at certain points, and I think that can be excusable when he has a better story. So he's mm. when he's doing something like Days of Future Past, which is inventive and the story is fun and there is more thrust to the story itself. I don't really mind that so much, but it it felt like unless you were famous enough that you de- you demanded a storyline in this film or that you were one of the characters that Brian Singer had introduced 15 years ago and so was still <laughs> interested in, unless you were one of those he just couldn't care less. I mean, I, I kind of... I'm, I'm so baffled whenever Brian Singer reminds people that he was involved in X-Men First Class and he produced it because he seems to have nothing but disdain for everything that happened throughout that movie. <laughs> and that might be fine for you, Neil, who didn't like it, but it's my favourite X-Men movie. I All love right. it. And I like the team and I like the I like the whole vibe of that film. Um, and, yeah, it just, it just felt like just a- a- anything from that film... He wasn't interested in, apart from Charles and Eric, who really was only interested in, you know, these two actors who were now playing younger, sexier versions of the ones that he was making talk to each other 15 years ago. Yeah, and even Magneto doesn't get a a right lot to do in uh, Apocalypse, does he? (laughs) No. Uh, uh, Well, I I, I would argue that perhaps the stuff that they do with him is the most weak and absurd in in all of the film. Uh, (laughs) There's a, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't like regarding Magneto, which, uh, you know, you've got Michael Fassbender playing him and you've got that, and that character has been compelling in the previous two installments. I feel like I want to apologise to you, Joe. I mean, I didn't make the film, but you're, you're clearly very hurt by all this and I feel that liking it in some way makes me somewhat responsible. I just, I, like, I just want movies to be about something and, you know, for me, that's why I would... I mean, this on the surface, I would find it much easier to go back and watch this again than I would Batman v Superman. But I couldn't say that it's a better film than Batman v Superman. Well, 
that's... Because at least at least <laughs> Batman v Superman, however say... however badly it is handling what it's trying to do, it feels like it's trying to do something. Um, whereas this, I I mean, all of the criticisms that the that you know get thrown around about superhero movies, and you see the DC movies and the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies responding to that criticism and kind of growing and evolving, whereas. The X-Men franchise just seems to live in its own little bubble. And there is stuff that it does in this film that I'm like, have you not heard why people have been frustrated with the other ones? Why are you doing that? Can I just chuck in another comment from Mike? Because he really liked this film. And he, one of the things he said to me that kind of stuck was that he liked how operatic it was. And I found that interesting because that's something I said to Joe about the 90s X-Men comics the last time we covered an X-Men film is that they were operatic and they had these, like, big themes and grand sweeping sentiments. And, like, he... The thing he was saying was that he enjoyed how it was just, like, everything was big and important and there wasn't the kind of Marvel soap opera to it. I felt like they were trying to make it feel big in terms of the stakes, but for me everything felt so much smaller and inconsequential, even though they were telling me how big it was because I wasn't invested. I think I can I can see where Mike's coming from. I think there is a kind of epic quality to it which uh I think Batman versus Superman tried to instill but completely it just went it was just so serious and dour. Uh whereas the X-Men films are kind of by their very nature they're kind of silly and uh they they know they're a bit silly so there's a lot of humor in there. And I think there's quite a good balance in Apocalypse between the epic and the silly. I think Brian Singer's quite aware. Um, somebody said this to me as I came out of the screening. Simon Renshaw, I don't know if you know him. Uh, he's not a very but nice mm-hmm. person. I wouldn't ever recommend talking to him. <laughs> um, but he did, make a, he did make a semi-reasonable point, which was that um, Brian Singer's very aware of how camp these films are, and he deals with that quite well, and he kind of puts that across quite well. And that's something that I think is quite difficult to, a difficult balance to strike in films like this. But I think he gets it right. I would, I kind of, certainly in terms of the visuals, would prefer him to go even camper. Like, I don't, I don't want to see the X-Men put back in black suits again, in plain bat suits. You know, yeah. if you want, like, have, if you're going to have, like, a range of mutants in your movie, maybe don't just have all of them blue. I mean, the film gets a good joke out of that, but, like, literally, yeah. the only mutants that don't look human have blue skin. You know, <laughs> throw some different ones in there, mix it up a little bit, and, you know... Stick them all... This is an 80s movie. I mean, like, so Angel walks in with this ridiculous, like, blonde afro at the start of the movie that seems very 80s. And Jubilee has the, kind of, the TV show costume, the animated show costume. Um, But then, you know, when we get to the final fight, it's another big blue dude with a big black costume on fighting lots of X-Men with black costumes on. And the most colourful thing that you're looking at is Sophie Turner's hair. But you can't make them green, Joe, because then they would just disappear against the green screen. You have to to think about this from a directorial point of view. Um, Well, shall we... um, I think the listeners probably have a good idea what we all think of this movie now. Shall we take a listen to another little trailer and then come back with all our spoilery thoughts and we'll we'll ruin every aspect of the movie for you? That's a great idea. Yeah. And by that, I mean explain to you why they are not enjoyable. (laughs) Things are better. The world is better. Just because there's not a war doesn't mean there's peace. He's coming. 
Some call him Apocalypse. He was some kind of god. For thousands of years, he's been amassing mutants to take their powers. He always had four followers. Like the four horsemen. Eric, don't join them. Whatever it is you think you saw in me, I buried it with my family. Together, we will cleanse the earth. Everything they've built will fall! And from the ashes of their world, we'll build a better one! I've never felt power like this before. They took him. Raven, the world needs the X-Men. I'm not a hero. Students look up to you. If I'm going to teach your kids something, I'm going to teach them how to fight. Follow me. Jahar. I'm not afraid of him. Magneto, he's my father. What? Him and my mom, they do. No, I know. Not all of us can control our powers. Then don't. Apocalypse means to destroy this world. It's all of us against a god and the most powerful beings on earth. Forget everything you think you know. None of that matters. You're not students anymore. I'll take everything from them. You're X-Men. Well, you've been busy. We had a little help. Okay, so we're back now with our spoiler-filled section. Guys, what do you want to spoil first? What's what's the what's the most spoilerific thing about this film that you could tell anyone to ruin it for them? I cannot believe that Charles Xavier's hair fell out. <laughs> I turned to my friend that I was at the at the screening watching this with um, halfway through halfway through that when he first started moving around, and I was like. Is that chopping off his hair? Oh, God, no. This is how they're doing the let's explain how Professor X went bald. In Who would have thought it, but a, a more terrible way than when Wolverine first found his jacket. <laughs> I mean, there are we a lot, used... of, lot of hair origins in this film, aren't there? There are at least two. Well, yes, a storm goes white-haired and Professor X loses his hair. It just seems so dumb. They set up a whole new timeline at the end of uh, Days of Future Past. So this the apocalypse takes place in a different timeline from the one that we know from the original X-Men films. Am I right? Yes. So yeah. Charles didn't actually need to lose his hair, did he? I mean, you could argue that that character is iconically bald and therefore he needed to go bald at some point. But he didn't need to lose his hair because he could have not had that incident... Which yeah. you could argue never should have happened in the first timeline. So how did he go bald in the first timeline? Um, I don't know. He could have had nice flowing locks for the rest of his life. I guess it could have been the same. That, that's the thing about those two timelines. You could the original timeline could have an apocalypse event in there as well. True, but e- equally, it 
might not. Yeah, he might have um, just fallen out of a tree like Duncan Goodhue and all his hair fell out. <laughs> I mean, I, I think we've well, now thought about this more than anyone connected to the film. So, <laughs> I mean, that's my position on how the X-Men films approach their continuity, which is to just ignore it completely and assume people like us will do the legwork. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I think a more compelling plotline would have been to watch... James McAvoy slowly recede over the course of three or four movies, and then then it starts to fall out a little bit. That would be more interesting than what is, we saw. Is there an explanation in the comics, James, as to how his hair falls out? In the comics, he just goes bald when he's young. There's no there's no inciting uh, incident. What what would have happened if, say, the reason that Apocalypse had picked Charles was because he really liked that hairdo? Because it is people have good hair in this film, and James McAvoy's pretty near the top of that you know of the, of the luscious locks stakes yeah what if apocalypse had really wanted that hair well he lost not... the hair yeah. he lost the hair because he was interrupted if it had been allowed to go it would have been fine yeah i think we pro- i think we probably have exhausted the charles xavier hair bit so that's the big spoiler charles xavier is bald um uh, one of i think one other thing big thing from the end of the movie before we get into all the other stuff which is spoilerific but i think points to for me one of the larger issues with this film so we can talk about it being grand and operatic and epic and the destruction that this film the collateral damage we see sydney torn to pieces in this film presumably hundreds tens if not hundreds of thousands of innocent people killed Mm. also new york yeah and so that that happens and Okay, if that's what you want to do in the film, that's fine. It seems to me to be a strange thing that... A thing that would be potentially difficult for any sequels to gloss over, the fact that that happened. Yeah. Um, the, The way that superhero movies have in the past couple of years tried to deal with the fact that you know, all of this mindless destruction and, you know, and show like the real consequences of it. It felt odd that the movie had ignored that whole kind of narrative and just yeah. went hell for leather with tearing up the cities. <clears throat> but then the fact that four of those four horsemen, at least two of them by the end of the film are perceived to be, well, Storm is joining the X-Men. Magneto has been forgiven because he helped take down Apocalypse. <laughs> and if Angel ever comes back, I presume they would bring him onto the good side because that's his position in the comics. It just seemed insane to me that those people who, through no form of brainwashing or anything like that, had just decided to follow Apocalypse, had decided to do what he'd done, were complicit in the murder of hundreds of thousands of people, especially Magneto, but also Storm, and we are supposed to view them as heroes, whatever shades of grey you want to have within there, but heroes are anti-heroes moving forward? Yeah, that's a really uh, poor choice and um the most upsetting part of it is that it, it, those kind of shots that you see of uh, landmark destruction it's literally like two shots and they're repeated a few times so maybe you see four or five shots but if you had just cut those shots out of the, the film it would have made no difference because magneto's doing this mad thing where they where he's gathering uh, chunks of buildings for some reason i can't even remember why he was doing it at the end of the film but he's just standing there in that big swirling mass of uh, rubble and he's collecting bits of the Sydney Opera House for no reason and bits of the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever it is uh, mm. and, and it, you could have just 
those cutaways to those other cities, they could have just removed those altogether in the edit, quite late in the process, I would imagine, after seeing Batman vs Superman and Civil War, where that kind of thing is addressed. And, you know, the story would not have been remotely altered, apart from the fact that we would not be talking about that awful bit of it. I mean, because essentially what he's doing, he's manipulating the metal in the world to try and level the world so they can tear it down and build a new one. Now, you could (laughs) surely do a simple thing with that with him. They talked at some point about how he was starting to manipulate the metal under the ground. So maybe it could have been that he was doing the he was doing it to the stuff that was in the direct vicinity of him and elsewhere he was kind of working on the stuff that was in the depths of the earth without killing all those people but also not even referring to the fact that they were doing it mm. you know there was there was no sense in the film that that people even those military leaders were concerned that innocent people were dying yeah, yeah. they didn't talk about the human cost very much did they i mean they did have there was one interesting second where they were talking about how he was altering the magnetosphere. And that's something that he's done in the comics. So when he's like severely amped up and been able to hold the world a ransom like that. And it's kind of, I thought they were going to go that way with it, but they didn't. He was just in a massive swirling stuff for some yeah. reason. And so then the film people could wander up and shout at him through it. And then the film kind of ends with them all back at the X-Mansion, rebuilding it, kind of everyone smiling, looking forward to the future, and Charles and Eric are talking, oh, you came back to our side eventually, you know, no one, you know, we. it's it basically Brian Singer putting those characters in the positions that they would be going into his 90s X-Men movie, mm. or his early 2000s X-Men movie, the first X-Men film that kind of feels like this is the status quo now, that they're pretty close to how you knew them to begin with. Yeah, they're just going to age a bit. But I mean, that, felt, that felt crazy to do after the ending of this film. It was like, did was no one aware that <laughs> all of these characters who were following Apocalypse were doing it because they'd chosen to, not because they'd been forced to or brainwashed or anything like that? Yeah, Charles should probably have been a bit more cross with Magneto for doing those bad things, shouldn't he? Hey, Magneto, you just killed hundreds hundreds and thousands of humans. Goodbye, old friend. Yeah. (laughs) Magneto's family is still dead as well. Like, he seems to be be over the death of his family as well. Oh, that scene. What? I mean, (laughs) like, someone call up the Avengers, tell them they need to sack Hawkeye. Someone call up DC, tell them Arrow is done. Because that random policeman in that Polish village can shoot an arrow without even looking and take out a woman and her small child in the same shot. It was a That's tragic accident, Joe. I mean, that, I think he... I think to be he, fair, be that was my favourite scene of the film where he, like, falls to his knees and goes, Is this what you want from me? <laughs> That is grand and operatic. I'll give you yeah, that. That's that's what uh, that's what Mike was saying was operatic when I was laughing at it. I I, I am going to replace every time you say operatic with melodramatic. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> and when you say grand, I say nonsense. Um, <laughs> uh, I yeah. Um, I just I, I hated all that I mean, stuff. That, like that would have been acceptable had it been the driving like narrative for the character. But yeah, it w- like it disappeared. Like all the, all of their threads, these characters get introduced, and then it they hang around in the background using their powers. 
Well, should we should we go back to the start of the film and kind of try and track each of these characters through? Because I think if if we at least talk about the first forty five minutes to an hour of this movie, I can talk about stuff that I did like. Um, and because the film kind of has, I would say it kind of has almost like five or six different strands to begin with between. The apocalypse stuff, um, Cyclops coming to the school and meeting the other new mutants, um, the Magneto stuff, um, Mystique's little bit with Nightcrawler and Caliban, who I believe is referenced but we don't meet, <laughs> um, Apocalypse going round and recruiting his horsemen, and you've also got Moira Metaggart investigating stuff with the CIA. And kind of all of the, all of those characters kind of are drawn together. I wouldn't say in any kind of elegant interweaved way, but just no. they, they, it does come together. Um, but let's start pre-credits with all of the stuff that's going on in Egypt. So we've got a flashback to like like three thousand BC, and Apocalypse is the world's first mutant, and he is being worshipped as a god. And he is doing some kind of ceremony to transport himself into the body of uh, Oscar Isaac. Um, I mean, who, who would want to do that, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> if I and could he... transport myself into a body of somebody, it would either be Ryan Gosling or Oscar Isaac. <laughs> and I, I'll just sub in Ryan Reynolds because me and Neil have a long, a long-standing feud over which <laughs> which Ryan is the best. <laughs> Handily, Oscar Isaac already is bald, so he's not going to have any of that awkward balding when he's doing the transformation uh, but then we see there are kind of like some some rebels who don't believe who believe that apocalypse is a false god and attempt to take him down um what do you what do you guys think of all of that egypty stuff right at the start i bloody loved it i thought it was great yeah, i loved it as well it was good fun like especially i really enjoyed okay. seeing people crushed by giant falling blocks like that was that was great yeah there was so much violence and that was great <laughs> I thought I did actually think the sequence was quite smart in the way that it quickly established the kind of you know it did a very good job of without Oscar Isaac having to say anything because I mean he is basically out cold for most of the sequence anyway or without you having to see him you know doing particularly brutal stuff or why the characters thought of him as a god it just it established the kind of status quo with that character pretty fast and then yeah. did a fun action sequence around it um i agree exactly with that it it just seemed uh crazy to me that we never got more of a sense of who he was as the film progressed because it felt like okay you, you know you've established who this guy is now let's find out stuff beyond that but it seemed like that brian singer was content with saying here's a guy who was worshipped as a god the world has changed. He doesn't like the way it changed. Um, and he's going to try and get back to a position where he rules over the world again. Mm. A bit like Mannequin. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there isn't anything more to him, though, is there? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think you're right. It would have been nice. I mean, how would you have done that? You know, it would have had you would have had a flashback to kind of 4000 BC where he was... I don't know, you would have had to have some kind of montage of his kind of early life in Egypt when he was being a twat. I don't know that you need that, because like I said, I think the, the opening sequence kind of does that job of establishing who he is then, uh, or certainly in terms of, you know, the, uh, you know, I, I don't need to see him turning into the guy that gets um, worships as a god. I just like, maybe when he is in the present day that he has a few more conversations with maybe his horsemen. You know, he's yeah. got he's got these four characters around him who are rarely allowed to speak. And, you know, one of them's Michael Fassbender. Have 
conversations about like you know this is why i'm doing what i'm doing this is what's driving me this is this is why you should join my cause because that was another thing like i just didn't buy any of their motivations enough to join him there are some there are some interesting moments where he's talking about how like weapons are the tools that the weak use to fight the strong and he's got this kind of survival of the fittest thing going on and that that is recognizably apocalypse from the comics and something i liked but then in the final act, it it sort of disappears and he's just like, I'm going to connect my brain up with everyone and then I win. Like, where where's the philosophy in that in that attempt at victory? Like, I just I didn't get it. Does it, it is there a reason why Apocalypse is such a well-liked villain in the comics, James? I mean, it's hard to say. I think it's just the kind of Darwinian aspect to him. Like, there, there's a lot going on. Like, he's very powerful. He's got the kind of strong philosophical core he's you know screwed around with the mythology uh like there's a lot of x-men mythology tied to apocalypse that all came quite late in the 80s and 90s so it's all the stuff i really am familiar with and enjoy so i imagine that's why like people just the character became popular and the more they used him the more popular he became so you know, it's kind of hard to explain why one one idea catches on and others don't, but Apocalypse did. But so his thing is basically survival of the fittest. Yeah, basically. I, see, I, I didn't get a strong sense of that from this film. And that seems like that is Magneto's normal... That's close to Magneto's normal standpoint in these movies, that mutant kind is the obvious progression from humankind and that kind of that they don't need to coexist with them because they are better than them yeah Um, i mean apocalypse is more like it doesn't matter who you are as long as you're stronger right he, he doesn't just care about mutants he just cares about strong mutants and strong people in general but again that feels like something that magneto and Apocalypse could at least have discussed because they're coming at things from oh yeah for sure yeah. different points of view. But you seem to be forgetting that uh, Apocalypse learned everything he needs to know by placing his hand on an episode of Star Trek, uh, <laughs> a bit like Johnny Five, and just kind of uh, assimilating all the world's information through the telly. So you know why it, it's like there are plenty of people who would much rather just sit and watch the telly rather than actually talk to people. And that's basically what he did. It's a commentary on modern life. <laughs> I'd like to see you write an entire paper on that, Neil. Maybe Could, I can have. you give me can you give me two thousand words on the incredible suit by Friday? Yeah, no problem. Awesome. I'm looking forward to reading that. Um Neil, I, I actually know from right from reading your review of this film on on your blog. Um you liked the title sequence, didn't you? Oh well I didn't say I liked it. I just said it wasn't <laughs> I just said it wasn't boring. I mean I did like it. It's hilariously great. Like the whole thought... kind of whizzing through uh, thousands of years of human history and, and just picking up like the fact that there was a war and some Nazis and then really weirdly <laughs> the Mona Lisa. <laughs> and those are the, like the three main things that happened in 3,000 years of human history. See, I preferred it when it was my screensaver on Windows 95. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest, I wasn't... I, like, I, while I appreciated the efficiency of the Egypt pre-title stuff, um, uh, after watching the Egypt stuff and the title sequence, I was like, oh, maybe I can understand where these two-star reviews are coming from. And then it was it was after that that the film started winning me around. We kind of start with a classic X-Men scene, which is... 
Cyclops getting his powers in school. Which maybe like the it's definitely I think it's the second time we've seen Cyclops get his powers in school. Um <laughs> after X Men Origins Wolverine, weirdly. <laughs> it's oh, I don't remember that happening in X Men Origins Wolverine. Yeah, this is the third Cyclops. Wow. Yeah. Um X Men Origins Wolverine had that weird subplot about the young mutants in the school who get taken to the same facility that Wolverine's at and then de-aged Patrick Stewart turns up to save them at the end of that movie as if he is going off to form the X-Men first class Mm. Um, except then they made a film of that where it was not Patrick Stewart and it was completely different mutants and actually um, Cyclops shouldn't be there for another 10-20 years anyway so it's all deleted timeline now yeah Anybody think this series continuity was completely fucked? <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of which, how old are these characters? <laughs> Alex Summers, who is Banshee, who is about to play a version of Young <clears throat> MacGyver Havoc. on CBS. Oh, is it? Huh? Alec- Alex Summers is Havoc, not Banshee. Joe, schoolboy no, 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 era, no. Jesus. So he was he's Havoc, yes, because he shoots lasers out of his chest. Um, but he, <laughs> he is in X-Men First Class in the 60s. And then walks into the school at the start of this film with his younger brother, who uh, now presumably about 40 years old, which is how old Jennifer Lawrence should also be. And also... Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Holt. Um, no one else because they've killed them all. Yeah. Well, James and McAvoy also is, pr- is presumably supposed to be 20 years older. Nobody looks 20 years older than they did five years ago, do they? <laughs> no one looks five years older than they did. But yeah, that, it, just, it speaks to what I feel to be Brian Singer's disdain for X-Men First Class. That there's that, that, that comment towards the end where like Mystique is like, oh, me and Beast are the only ones left. And that's basically because we're more famous than the others and they can't get it would be insane to get rid of us right <laughs> uh, like even banshee who inexplicably oh sorry even havoc who inexplicably made his way this far because he was the most boring of that entire first class team to begin <laughs> with he gets unset he he gets killed off in this film but only like mentioned that he's been killed off where everyone's like hey where's that guy where's he gone oh he was closest so quicksilver eat He'd already burned to a crisp before Quicksilver could even save him. It was probably for the best. Yeah. X-Men X Men continuity is an absolute mess. And I know that annoys you, doesn't it, James? Yeah, because I think, like, I don't think continuity has to exist. But I think if you're going to use it and you ignore it in any workable sense, it just becomes distracting. I honestly would not care if they didn't say what year this film was. But the fact that they specifically say have people saying, like, oh, it's been ten years since we last saw each other. Yeah, and you're going well. No, it hasn't. Like that—that's bad filmmaking because it takes you out of the movie. I at least, I at least did appreciate this time that the characters seem to have demonstrably changed since the Days of Future Past. Like, so we—you have Xavier has the school fully up and running, and Magneto has gone off and got married and have a kid because ten years are big. Big old chunks of time, if you think about your own life. Um, regular pod uh, guest Caroline Cedar, she, uh, I see her talking about this on Twitter quite often. That you know, like the between first class and Days of Future Past, the the amount of stuff that should have changed those characters, and you know the importance of those relationships of characters that knew each other for a week and then didn't see each other for a decade or two decades. Um, it it just doesn't really ring true, and so I at least appreciate that that felt like they had had major life changes in between these two movies. But. Yeah, I felt like Mystique had changed a bit as well. She seemed to yes. be 
uh, a bit less angry and she I don't quite know what she was doing when she was fanning about in Berlin or wherever it was collecting um, <laughs> Nightcrawler Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Well, she just did, she just seemed to have her shit together and she she had a bit of a purpose, whereas she felt like a, a confused kid in the other films. Yeah, well, so, I mean, and again, she should. She's 50 years old. She, you can excuse <laughs> the Jennifer Lawrence thing because Mystique shape changes. So that's fine. I guess she can just keep her appearance whatever age she wants to yeah. be at any time. But yeah, I, I, I agree. Was, was she, James, you should be able to give us some X-Men context on this. She was a bounty hunter, was she? Uh, times do you mean in this specific film in this film yes yes she is a bounty hunter and she's taking jobs from a guy called Caliban no okay my impression in this film was that she was just rescuing young mutants and Caliban was helping her get like traffic for them get passage though okay well but wasn't it it was also didn't the the guy who was working for Caliban say, "Oh, we've got information on Magneto"? Was she maybe? Do you think she was maybe buying information from them? Well, Caliban's power, which isn't very well explained in this film, in like Caliban's power in the comics is that he can track other mutants. So the impression I got was that Caliban tracks mutants and then sells the information about them to Mystique, and she's using it to rescue them. Right. And she's got a personal interest in Magneto. Whether like. You know, that's me bringing some comics knowledge to the film. So whether that came across is... Clearly it didn't, because you have a completely different interpretation. But I'll I'll be interested to hear what what Neil thinks, because I maybe I'm bringing my comics knowledge to it, so... Yeah, I I, I was thinking about it, and I actually don't... I can't... I couldn't quite work out what she was doing. But, again, I didn't really care. Um, But I I actually thought that Caliban was the guy the bald guy with the big up bug eyes in the in the kind of underground place and i know that he kept talking about caliban but i thought he was just referring to himself in the third person in a slightly <laughs> twatty kind of way is that not the case is that not caliban no that is caliban caliban refers to himself in the third person oh that was caliban yes well, there you go jesus again that's a God, comic Joe, that you I, don't know anything about comic books i thought he was just like some sap that they had put on the desk and that maybe Caliban was being held back for a better movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Well, Cal- Caliban was bug-eyed guy then. Fine. So has that changed your whole uh, opinion of the film now? Do you realise that it was actually not that bad? Oh, I love it now. I, was, like, <laughs> I feel like Caliban really anchored the film. He's, 
I love the way he talks about himself in the third person purely <laughs> to confuse me. <laughs> I think this film's just too intelligent for you, Joe. That's all. That's all. We <laughs> to that that is possible. Um, can we view Mystique as the real villain then? If she went to Berlin and went, okay, I'm going to save Nightcrawler, but this guy with wings, not interested in him. You know, she really sends him on the path to villainy, and you know, saves saves someone else just because he's blue like her. Well, only in the same sense that Moira McTaggart is the big villain because she bloody well woke up Dave, Mr. Apocalypse. She was there, but she wasn't responsible, Neil. Was she not? No. Moira's the real hero of this movie. She's certainly the real victim in the way... We discussed this at the end of of our X-Men First Class podcast about Moira having her brain wiped. And because it's not entirely clear, like, if he has wiped everything, it's kind of implied. And I remember us saying, kind of like, if Professor X did do that to her, that is a pretty, like, because he he is doing some kind of dodgy stuff in the way that he enters people's minds in that film, because he Mm. hasn't quite developed the ethics around the way he uses powers. And it's a pretty horrific thing for Professor X to have done. Um... And as much as I was like rooting for that relationship because I really like James McAvoy and I find Rose Byrne just very difficult not to love in anything that she's in. I, I, I it just, you know, she was like she was she'd been really, really badly treated by James McAvoy, and it was kind of until that last kind of scene that tried to play it kind of a bit more sweeping romantic when her when her memories come back. Um, it seemed like the film was kind of treating it as a punchline. <laughs> it was like, should, should it did he be bother- doing? Yeah, it did bother me that she was like, she got her memories back and she was like, oh, I'm so happy. It's like, uh, do you really mean I'm incredibly violated and upset? Yeah, and, and it meant that she was the punchline so often because she didn't know what all they knew. Yeah. And people read, oh, yeah, we know you. Oh, no, we don't know you because he did that thing. Did yeah. you? And I, I also couldn't understand as much as I love Rose Byrne why she was in this movie, why the CIA had any involvement to begin with, why Rose Byrne was there because she. It wasn't like bringing her character back because she, as far as she was concerned, she didn't have pre-existing relationships with any of these people, so it wasn't building on anything that First Class did with the characters. Um, it seemed like she was there because films need love interests and. Mm there wasn't any other aspects of the film where they were doing romantic stuff. I guess you could say Gene and, um, what's his face? Cyclops. Because, but that really was just like really on the edge. In fact, the sexiest scene in the film where you see someone have a bit of a connection is where old feral Wolverine looks at young Sophie Turner and you're like, nope. (laughs) That's not a sexy (laughs) joke. That's like a hundred percent incorrect. (laughs) What's the sexiest scene in the movie, Neil? <laughs> Do you know what? I don't. I I don't recall a particularly sexy scene. I mean, I always <laughs> like seeing Hugh Jackman with his shirt off, but the kind of crazy um, Heath Robinson VR headset that he's wearing <laughs> put me off a little bit. <laughs> well, well, we will we will definitely get to that sequence at some point. Um, but yeah, did did you guys think that there was a point to having Moira around beyond it's nice for Rose Byrne to be there? Nah. They brought her back because they like bringing people back. Reminds you it's a franchise. Um, And so, I mean, I will then extend that point to kind of the the formation of Apocalypse's Four Horsemen. So he he goes around. um, The first one he recruits is 
Psylocke? No, Storm. He picks he picks Storm first, and so it basically seems like the way that he recruits them isn't to convince them to join his cause or to like um, explain why what he's doing or why he wants to do it. It it's literally just he displays how powerful he is in, he is to them, and they kind of fall in line. I can't really remember that far back <laughs> like the film is really long well so Storm he basically sees in a market does you know learns English from Star Trek and then <laughs> basically seems to amplify her powers and turn her hair white after he's also trapped that one bloke in a wall in front of her oh that's um, great that bit I did like the wall trapping <laughs> he kind of leaves them alive in there as well which is pretty cool yeah you never yeah. see him get out do you he's probably still yeah. there yeah, he probably is still there. And it nearly happened to Cyclops as well, which uh, that would have been fun. <laughs> but yeah, so he basically just does that for Storm. For Psylocke, he basically shows, he dissolves Caliban's gun, who I now know as Caliban. And um, for Magneto, he wipes all those people out around him. And uh, Angel, he turns his wings metal. Um so yeah, that's 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 how he recruits them, and he gets them on board by going, "Look how powerful I am, and I'm gonna change the world." Are, are you with me? Um, I guess with Magneto, it's a little bit more kind of tapping into that rage and exploiting the anger that Magneto has because his wife and child have been murdered in front of him, mm. uh, purely because he's a mutant. But again, they felt like characters that were completely superfluous. Other than perhaps Magneto, it seemed like it was just a thing that was there because in the comics he has to have four horsemen. Yeah, Yeah. because Psylocke's Psylocke's irrelevant, Angel's irrelevant, Storm I would think was irrelevant other than I know that she's going to become an important member of that team. And then Magneto yeah, he's the one guy that it makes sense that Apocalypse would want. See, it, one of the things that bothered me about this film specifically was that in when Apocalypse was introduced, it was a major storyline for Angel in that, like, after he was one of the original X-Men, like, his wings got cut off by one of his uh, business partners who went insane or something. And, like, the fact that he made a deal with Apocalypse to get his wings back was a kind of big deal. Like, it was, it was a major beat for the character, and then he as part of the process he gets brainwashed and he fights his way back and stuff and like that that plot line is a fairly iconic story as far as the character of angel goes and in this film they didn't mine any of it like they he sort of had a screwed up wing for a bit and then apocalypse fixed him and with no consequences mm. it just it's it's endemic of the way brian singer kind of wastes the like solid gold material he's got to work with it seems crazy to me that in the era of shared universes, and I actually think there is a middle ground between what X-Men and actually Dawn of Justice as well, and you know, the way that it, Dawn of Justice shoots Jimmy Olsen in the head, you know, five minutes into that movie. There's probably a middle ground between treating characters like that, which is, you know, don't you have any foresight that you've got this world full of great characters and you could be forming this incredible shared universe but not not if you're going to waste characters this badly. Um, because, you know, like, how do you bring Angel back in the next movie and make him interesting again? Or, I, I mean, like, how do, how do you rehabilitate Storm from following Apocalypse? How, how, and This is, you, this is you, the second time they've used Psylocke as little more than a background character. Like, 
she maybe had the same number of lines in X-Men The Last Stand. Probably no one else remembers. No, I don't remember. Well, quite. Neil, any memory of Psylocke in The Last Stand? Not n- not much memory of The Last Stand, to be honest. <laughs> and you see, I think Marvel goes too far in the other direction in that, you know, they are terrified about killing off characters and sometimes you think, oh, well, that would be a good opportunity to use that character, but they don't, you know, like, we can't possibly show the wasp's face, the old wasp's face in Ant-Man because we'll probably cast her and use her later so we don't want to ruin continuity even in the tiniest way. Whereas, you know, this is the other... This is the other extreme of just like wasting characters who you could do interesting stuff with later down the line. But I wonder if Brian Singer just thinks, look, I've reinvented and redone these characters so many times. I did a feral Sabretooth and then Liev Schreiber got to play a, an, an actual version of that character five movies later that he can just do that again. Yeah, he's probably thinking, ah, I'll do this like in two films' time, I'll do a proper version of this character. Yeah, I'll bring Angel back, and but this time I'll cast a different actor and again and do him properly I this think time, if I care. In defence of uh, Apocalypse, I'm not sure why I'm defending uh, a fictional <laughs> character, but uh, I think the reason that he recruited those people was because that he sensed that they were kind of um, intrinsically bad people, because he saw Storm stealing an apple or whatever it was she did off the market and <laughs> he saw um uh, angel was uh, in a cage fight and he was obviously using his powers to well no there was all no, no. okay i think what we should do is delete everything that i just said because i'm not <laughs> no, quite sure no i think you're onto something there they, they well all... my point is that he was they're all bad in some way and so he probably saw that they could be their will could be bent to his will. Yeah, and all de- and all desperate, I guess, a little bit yeah, as well. Yeah, and a well. bit weak and, you know, easily controllable. I get that. I, I also... Um, I so, I've seen a lot of complaints about, you know, you've hired Oscar Isaac, why would you stick him underneath all this blue makeup and change his voice and all that kind of stuff? And I buy that to an extent, and obviously that's a criticism that the Marvel movies have had. You know, you hire people like... Uh, Lee Pace and Christopher Eccleston and bury them under all that stuff um, and then you know Daniel Brühl gets to be a normal human being and people like him a lot more as a villain mm. having said that I think if you hire Oscar Isaac and bury him under all of that makeup and modulate his voice I think you've got a good enough actor there that with the right material it doesn't matter you know give him something to do and he'll do it I don't think that the problem in this film is that Oscar Isaac is hidden I think mean, the problem is that Oscar Isaac is hidden and he doesn't have a character to, to play. Uh, I mean, you say yes. that. I I kind of enjoyed Apocalypse in this film mainly because he wasn't Magneto. And it just, well, that is something, he, he was, but then Magneto was, was right next to him the whole bloody side. Well, yeah. He, like, he was more developed and more interesting and more credible a threat than, say... Kevin Bacon. Ah, no, you see, I disagree. Again, I think some of this is me going, well, this is what I know of Apocalypse, let me see what, you know, how I can take one line in the film and match it to that and build a plot thread out of it. But I think that's one of the ways in which knowing the source material can help you enjoy a film. Like, in the same way that knowing everything about Psylocke and Angel and stuff made me go, well, that was pointless. Knowing a lot about Apocalypse made me build a more convincing picture of him from what little we got to see do you think there is an argument for the next x-men film just there is no professor x and there is no magneto just deal with the kids in that school and tell a story about them because there's been rumors that professor x is going to be in the new mutants movie so he could be off doing that and magneto just 
just rest him for a little bit. Shake up the films a, a, a little bit more, you know? It's sort of like it, Marvel can have movies that don't have Iron Man in them. I know they don't like to, but they still <laughs> they, they still can from time to time. <laughs> you know, I just as interesting as that relationship is, they've been there and fairly front and centre for countless movies now. That <laughs> seventeen. I, just, years. I think you're right. Um, they seem to. Um, whenever Wolverine turns up in an X Men film, it just immediately knocks it up a notch. So there are there are characters there that are. Um, kind of easy to fall back on as crowd pleasers and i think that i think you're right i think there could be a film that just concentrates on the lesser characters but they need to they need to magic upon somebody like they did on hugh jackman in 2000 with x-men and and they need to write those characters properly and uh, the examples that we saw in apocalypse will not carry a film by themselves well, so, for instance, because by the end of this film, Professor X is watching on, but essentially Jennifer Lawrence's mystique is leading the X-Men. She is training this new team of X-Men. Yeah. There is, there's no possible way that maybe McAvoy's around, but in the background, that you have a team led by mystique. That is basically those characters. It's it's Storm, it's Cyclops, um, Quicksilver, um, Nightcrawler... Um, I'm sure there's a couple more that I'm forgetting, but those those kind of characters, and that maybe if you actually spend the time, if you spend the time in a movie a little bit more focused on that group and establish them as a team and explore the dynamics of those of that team, um, that that could be a good movie. Because honestly, that that's kind of what I hope the next movie is. Marvel movies, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies have movies, uh, uh, frequently have very bad villains where you don't care about the villain, but you can kind of enjoy the film anyway. And I kind of would just like to see an X-Men movie that's kind of like the first Avengers movie, which mostly focuses on a core team of characters and establishes them really well. Mm. Because, that, 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 and you're right, Neil, that is the problem. The The characters that are the most defined right now are Professor X and, and Magneto, mm. but they're played out. Yeah, no, I think, that, I think that could work. Personally, I thought the Professor X Magneto thing had been done more than enough by the third X-Men film, and we're double that now, so... Yeah. I mean, it feels from this film as well that they've just run out of interesting things to say, because Magneto's philosophical basis in this film is pretty tenuous anyway so you know the war of ideologies by definition can't be won because then the concept is gone but there are you know there are other things you can do with the characters they've all got their own ideas and their own standpoints like i was saying about storm earlier like there's a big dynamic between storm and wolverine who one is a guy who kills and one isn't like you could build a film around that yeah, it needs to be about people. It doesn't like apocalypse is you know there's no real focus on characters as characters. They're just kind of pawns that move around the chessboard. That and another film that ha- that focused on that small team needs to be about the interaction between those characters, I think. Yeah, and I just think that like, X-Men has some stuff inherent to the kind of characters that they have that most of the other movie universes don't have. And I I I think I think of a movie focused on kind of kind of like what the first x-men movie was but with with less of the focus on the adult teachers in the school but more on the kids that are in the school and Mm. you know folks i mean that maybe that's what the new mutants movie is and maybe that i'm foolish in hoping for that here because again apparently this movie is going to jump a decade ahead 
to the 90s next time, so all of these kids that we're seeing about to get trained are presumably going to be fully trained up and 10 years into being X-Men by the time we see them again anyway. And then 10 years after that, they all have to look like Halle Berry and Funky Anson and James Marsden anyway. <laughs> I don't know well, when that change happens. By that point, you can actually hire Famke Anson and James Marsden and just CG de-age them. Yeah. <laughs> like just basically the last scene of X-Men Days of Future Past, but for two hours instead of two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you got? It's it's pretty much a remake of the sequence from the first movie. But what did you guys think about the big X Mansion explosion in the middle of the film and Quicksilver? Because Quicksilver seems to have been the X Men universe's way of bringing humor into things and a bit of levity. Yeah, I I found that scene. Um, I had a lot of mixed feelings about that scene. Um, <laughs> I thought it was really well done. I thought it was really funny. Yes. And I very much enjoyed it, and I like Quicksilver and what he's one of the most interesting of the younger, the new characters. Um, but the fact that the kind of whole mansion exploded was quite a traumatic thing. And then to suddenly <laughs> stop the film dead and then do a big joke sequence just seemed really odd to me. It seemed like a massive gear shift. I thought that humour was a little bit misjudged. But that said, I very quickly got over it and enjoyed it. Yeah, I really like this. I would say that what you're saying there, Neil, is kind of indicative of the film's approach to collateral damage in that, ah, forget it. Does this mess with things tonally? Maybe. Just forget that anyone could be dying here, which is what the film does with Havoc. And um, enjoy this scene. And we can just put it all back together afterwards anyway. So don't worry. Having said that, I I actually liked this scene a lot more than I liked the one in the identical scene in the previous film. Yeah, I think my problem with all of the Quicksilver stuff in Days of Future Past um, is that it does feel massively tacked on. It 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 felt like something that the film paused and stopped telling the story it was telling to do this scene, whereas this was. Quicksilver was woven into the fabric of this film the way he wasn't last time. And I liked the way that he is a character who seems almost too powerful, that he mm. he is capable of feats beyond even what um, <laughs> like Professor X and Magneto and Jean Grey are. Um, but the film, I thought, in the final sequence, the smartest thing it did was show us that how, how um, Quicksilver could be uh, taken out of out of commission, basically, um, and also use him to be really fun elsewhere. I I, I liked his little quips. I, I liked. I loved that sequence of him pulling him. As soon as the soundtrack kicks in and you get "Sweet Dreams Are Made," I, I just I was like I was I was on board. I forgot that any. I forgot the. I forgot that the X Mansion was blowing up. I was just like, ah, oh, no. He's just running around having fun stuff. I really wanted to go back to that Twinkie falling to the ground at the end of the sequence. I thought they missed a trick there. It is one of the complaints that I agree with about this film that it doesn't feel like there's anything new in here. Like, that was a really good sort of upstakes version of the Quicksilver scene we saw in Days of Future Past. And we got another Wolverine going crazy sequence and we got a thing where the X-Men had to get up somewhere high and destroy something. You know, we got all these sequences that we've seen before and it wasn't, there wasn't anything where you can say, oh, that was really inventive and new. Yeah. Like, I enjoyed the action a lot, but I I agree with the criticism mm. that 
it hasn't tried anything that we haven't seen before. Yeah, you're right. And speaking of that action, so I think we've been fairly vocal on the podcast before, James, that for an X-Men movie, kind of the stuff that you want to see when it comes to the action sequences is these characters with different powers coming together and using their powers together as part of a team. I know kind of like in the comics, kind of the team up moves Mm -hmm. are some of the most iconic stuff that the characters do. And yet again, Brian Singer has a movie that by the end of the movie, you know, you've got, you've got all of these characters with very, very diverse powers all in this same location. And we basically watch four young X-Men fight the horse, well, three young uh, X-Men fight each of the horsemen, individually and then the team up aspect is that they all fire their power at apocalypse while he's trying to block them i I just want you know you you've got these characters together could we not see like them trying to do stuff as a team which even deadpool got a bit of in there towards the end well is the point not that they're still learning and uh you know initially they they are just thinking about themselves and their own powers and then eventually they kind of learn to work as a team well they do, well they don't work as a team they do they <laughs> that's like like i said professor x has that kind of rant at apocalypse where he says like you know you'll lose because you're just one guy and we're a team and it's like well that doesn't actually happen what happens is they run out of ideas and he goes oh gene you you do it and she does. That was the moment that I was just like, ah, fuck this movie. Really <laughs> fuck this. Because I just, I was like, if that is what you're building to, if the end of this movie is building to Charles being able to push Jean to the point where she unlocks the full potential of her powers and is is the force capable of taking down even someone as powerful, powerful as Ap- Apocalypse... I want to see that threaded all the way through the film. I want I want Jean to have been more central to the film, not just one of the three characters that's running around her Nightcrawler and um, Cyclops. I want it to be bedded all the way through the film that Jean is struggling with her powers, is trying to learn to use them better. It just feels like... It feels like most of the time she is fully she's fully able to use her powers at any point. It never seems like a real stretch for her. And as much as I did like Sophie Turner, like visually walking down that corridor and looking badass with her hair tied back and then unleashing the Phoenix force, which I assume that is again, um, (laughs) again, something we've seen already in in a movie before. I just, I wanted that to be woven into the film. I, I was watching that final act going, this feels set up like it could be any one of five or six characters who like, I thought is Quicksilver, gonna be like are they gonna subvert things by quicksilver being being the guy who even though he's the goofball saving the day or is magneto gonna change his mind and um and do something is there gonna be is he gonna realize that quicksilver's his family and that he's doing and it and it and then it was just oh no gene which which would be fine if you build that through the entire movie and i felt like they had one scene in gene's bedroom where she was having the nightmare and that was it. Well, that's the thing. Everyone, everyone got one moment, and then it could have been any of them in the in the final act, like as you say. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that, Neil? Or did it, I mean, did did it work for you? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with anything you say. Um, that that you know, I agree. I agree. I agree. It would have been much better if um, Jean's story had kind of carried on throughout the whole film. It was all a bit sudden that she had this explosion of 
fire or whatever it was. Um, I don't know. I just, <laughs> what can I say? I, it just didn't bother me that much, but I can see why it would. I, I just wonder whether Brian Singer is placing too much stock in his own movies that he's like, oh, everyone knows, you know, what Jean Grey was before. So kind of make that logical leap. I don't know how many 13, 14 year olds will be going to see X-Men Apocalypse opening weekend watched the first X-Men, the first three X-Men movies. You know, like if you're 13 years old, those movies came out when you were a toddler. (laughs) So, (laughs) and you know, I, I, as much as I like X Men Two, I don't think that I'm not sure how well that original original trilogy would hold up. I mean, uh, I I have to admit, like the bit with Jean manifesting the Phoenix was probably my favorite part of the film. <laughs> like that was <laughs> that was the only part of the film, or one of the few parts of the film, sorry, where I was getting that real like, oh, like really fuck yeah feeling that I normally get when I'm watching Marvel films when they're doing something like that is bringing the comics to life. <laughs> So, yeah. but I was only vaguely aware that that was a kind of reference to her character in the comics because I don't think the films have been particularly successful, as you said, Joe. In like the, the first trilogy, only really ever hinted at that Dark Phoenix stuff, and I, I, you know, I think if you'd only watched the films, it wouldn't really mean anything. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, well, yeah. I, com- I completely agree. It's just as a comics fan that <laughs> it was something I liked. Like again, the Wolverine sequence as well. That was the first time for me Wolverine has ever felt like the comics version of Wolverine. Like, just in the kind of unrestrained, like, brutality, mindlessness of it. Like, it it was the first time that, for me, Hugh Jackman has really been Wolverine. Which, you know, it's a bit late for that now, but... Well, I mean, (laughs) you you say that, you know, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine is possibly one of the most successful pieces of superhero movie casting. Everyone loves Wolverine, James. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I get, I'm not, I'm I get not saying, what you're saying. Yeah, I'm not saying it's bad. Like, he's a good version of Wolverine, but in this sequence he felt like... I mean, uh, okay, to get really deep about it, one of the things that's central to Wolverine as a character, at least in his early appearances, is... He's short. Well, aside from... He's being, Canadian. He's short and he's Canadian. Canadian. He has, yeah. like, these uncontrollable rages that he struggles to keep under control. And... Like, the there's a sense in the comics that he might just snap. And I've never felt that about the movie version of Wolverine until now when they show him snapping. I didn't, I didn't dislike the sequence. I just didn't feel like it had any place in this movie. (laughs) I thought like as a kind of like, Hey, this is, this is the kind of Wolverine that you should expect to see in the Wolverine three that, you know, if, if, if we are going to, I mean, that movie's going to be R rated. So, I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to get a more feral animal Wolverine in that film. Um, but I just did. I just didn't care when it was happening. Well, that whole the whole sequence is uh, exists only to insert Wolverine in as a cameo. There's no the characters go to Alkali Lake. Whether well, they're kidnapped by Striker and then they go to Alkali Lake and then they see Wolverine and then they escape. And then they go back to where that wherever they were. <laughs> you know, they could have just they could have just cut that whole section out. But you have to see Wolverine, I guess, and that's I don't know, fine. I really, really enjoyed the Wolverine stuff, so I wasn't too <laughs> bothered that that was such a nonsense part. He of uh, he he definitely looked um, more feral. Um, they they did a they did a good job with the hair. Um, did you, 
Did you find the Jean Grey scene as awkward as I did, though? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, knowing, totally. Yeah, it was I mean, really knowing awkward. Knowing that pre-existing relationship and then seeing... <laughs> and, I mean, because it's not even like... It's not even like Logan, who is always old, and so technically would always have looked old when she was young um, and is, you know, centuries older than her to begin with. It's it's also that Hugh Jackman is 15 years older when he than when he first started making these movies. <laughs> and then you have this kind of moment where those two characters connect and it's riffing on the relationship that you already know that exists. And as far as I'm concerned, it does a great job of burning down the... That love triangle, however it ever existed in these movies, is no longer there. Gene and Gene and Scott are the couple you root for now. You can no longer root for Wolverine and Gene. It, however awkward it was, it was very much lightened by the way Wolverine ran away, <laughs> kind of zigzagging through the forest, where you expected like some little kind of bongo drums to kind of accompany his dash off into the forest. <laughs> Um, I think we should, what, what we should probably do, we, we can tie in the post credit sequence to that Wolverine stuff because um, the post credit sequence, James, seemed to be tied into, well, it was it was in the building where Stryker had been and presumably is teasing the Wolverine solo movie rather than a, any sequel to X-Men Apocalypse. So they walk into back into that building, you see all the bodies being kind of tidied up that Wolverine has left in his wake someone takes a, a vial of his blood i think maybe uh, mm-hmm. with and and he is at that point he's weapon x um it looked like in the in the briefcase there was other samples so whoever was in this whoever was collecting that briefcase was getting samples of all of the government's projects related to mutants um and then we see the name essex corp on the briefcase so, do you think that is setting up a Wolverine three movie, or and and in addition to that, can you explain to us the comic book villain who is behind Essex Cop? Okay, so Essex is the name of a villain called uh, Mister Sinister, who like his great name, yeah, great name. <laughs> His, uh, was, that, was he born with that name? Uh, his given name is Nathaniel Essex. Right. Uh, He's chosen to call himself Mr. Sinister. Yeah, is... there's a very complex reason for that. Like, I could, shall I go okay. full Seb? No, I'll go half Seb and just say his original <laughs> origin was that he was the nightmare of a child, which is why he has this re- weird kind of nightmarish look and name. But that's not that's, that's cool. not how it ended up in the, being in the comics. Ah, oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Unless unless what you're going to tell us is better. Uh, his actual origin is one I quite like, which is that he's a Victorian geneticist who uh, was given immortality by Apocalypse, as it happens, uh, and spent, like, he spends his time cataloguing and collecting uh, mutant DNA. He's like a kind of evil Charles Darwin. And does does that seem like it's setting up Wolverine 3? I honestly could not tell you what this is setting up. Part of me wonders if it's setting up uh, the Gambit film, because Sinister is a character who has history with Gambit. Um, The fact that he's going to make a Wolverine clone makes me wonder if he's going to be in the X-Force movie and that he's going to create X-23, who is the teenage girl clone of Wolverine. Uh, X-23 has been rumoured for the Wolverine standalone movie. Okay, so yeah. yeah, so maybe maybe it is setting up Wolverine three then, but 
Sinister's the kind of villain who you could plug into any X-Men film and it would work. Okay. Um, at- Can I ask a really uh, non... Uh, uh, the question that somebody who doesn't know anything about comic books might Please ask, do. which is that, is Deadpool not a weapon... Uh, 11 or a weapon x i i i or something is he not one of those guys he is in x-men origins wolverine isn't he he's part of that same program yeah in the comics he is a part of the weapon x program uh in the film he wasn't but it's entirely possible he could be some offshoot program mate i mean so there's a potential for him to rock up in this next film that they're teasing here completely yeah I felt I, I I almost wonder whether Deadpool seemed to conspicuously not mention what the program was that he was involved in, or particularly who was behind it, other than here's this evil, bald, British shit Jason Statham guy, and <laughs> that and and maybe maybe the reason for that is because they knew they were doing Mister Sinister and they were doing Weapon X program stuff again, so they wanted to keep Deadpool separate. Maybe. I don't, I, I, I'll be very interested to see how they tie Deadpool into all of this. I was kind of, I was kind of wondering if they would find a way in the post-credits here just to do a little a little gag to at least establish that this is the same universe. I wouldn't hold your breath, Joe, if you're waiting for them to tie something in a future film into one of these previous films. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be a priority. Not into a previous. I'm sure they'll find some way to get Deadpool involved because that movie made a lot of money. But um, yeah, but they won't explain how. No, they'll just stick him in there and say, "Hey, it's Deadpool." <laughs> um, James, is there any more explanation that needs to go into X23, or is that, <laughs> or, or, or is there anything else in the Weapon X program beyond a Wolverine clone? Like, is there any? Is there anything else that Mister Sinister could be doing? I mean, uh, Sinister's, like, one of Sinister's connections to the X-Men is that he is interested in the combination of Scott and Jean's genetics, uh, specifically because they, they'll create a mutant powerful enough to destroy Apocalypse, uh, and Apocalypse is his sort of nemesis. Right. Obviously, they can't do that, but they could certainly carry over the the idea of him being interested in Scott and Jean, and that would provide a through line from this film where they set up that relationship. So, yeah, yeah. If they wanted to use him in an X Men sequel, that's one way they could do it. So, but, I mean, I I just assumed that it was going to be a Wolverine thing because we were going back to the scene that included Wolverine, and because that's the next movie. But I guess. I guess that they they've done something may, maybe quite smart in introducing a, something that's very flexible. Yeah, I mean specifically, I don't think they'll put him in the next Wolverine film, mainly because like Wolverine fighting a clone of Wolverine doesn't seem very interesting. I don't see that there's a place for X twenty three in Hugh Jackman's like goodbye movie, and also if they. If they did bring back a Wolverine clone in a future X-Men movie, it would not be Hugh Jackman, and that would just be a very disappointing way to bring him to introduce your new Wolverine. So, I mean, I, I, think, I, I think it's setting up X-23 for some film, but I'm not convinced it's for the next Wolverine film. James, I'm willing to wager one X-Men comic <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on X-23 being introduced as Wolverine's replacement in the Wolverine 3. Fair enough. I mean, my I, maybe I'm just projecting my hopes because I find X23 quite dull as a character, so... Right, you know. fair enough. 
Um, I, I, I just wonder whether it's maybe the, the easiest way to... Because how do you replace Hugh Jackman? You, you, you don't want to just do that same version of the character again, but maybe, you know, just, just a different, younger actor. Maybe the best way is to invert it and just go, okay, we now have a female Wolverine and she's not she's not the same character. She is a parallel to him. Yeah, but like just the idea of teenage female clone of Wolverine who has claws in her feet as well as hands. <laughs> Double the claws, what's not to like? She has two claws in her hands and one in each foot. Oh, same amount of claws, but different places. Yeah. Oh, this girl sounds hot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I think we've probably covered most of the film there. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to touch on or address or anything else that you particularly liked or disliked about the film? I thought, did anybody pick up on the... Uh, so they so they went to the cinema and they watched Return of the Jedi. Yes. And then at the very end of the film, uh, Apocalypse was having a pop at Quicksilver and Magneto saw this and he was like, even though he didn't know that Quicksilver is his son, he's like, don't do that to that guy he might possibly be my son i am going to change my allegiance and i'm going to do you in apocalypse man which is exactly the same as the end of return of the jedi yeah i guess i i was actually shocked that i I couldn't understand why quicksilver withheld that information it felt like it, it felt like the movie had the perfect opportunity to do it and that would be a driving force unless Unless the movie wanted it to be Magneto's decision. But you're right. I think that that parallel is there. And I don't think the Return of the Jedi stuff was thrown in there for for just that cheap gag at the start. Honestly. It's just that the rest of the film was so sloppy that I just couldn't quite tell whether it was intentional or not. Honestly, I think it was in an earlier draft. It was a deliberate reference and they changed their minds and sort of bottled the Quicksilver talking to Magneto bit. Yeah, For whatever reason, like they they went, oh, you know, maybe it violates continuity to have Magneto find out he's got a son, and we don't know if Fassbender's going to be back, so we can't have him deal with that in the next film. Yeah, I, I it, yeah, I, I I could buy that being what happened. Um, just on the Star Wars point, and um, I don't want to just bash. Um, X Men Apocalypse for this. Uh, it's just a bugbear of mine as someone who. I, I I know I'm a massive nerd who presents a superhero movie podcast, <laughs> but I've never really loved Star Wars, like any of them. I'd like, okay, you've made seven films, one of them's quite good, two of them are okay, and the rest are terrible. Can we please stop talking about them, and can we stop referencing them in every other bloody movie, just because the director grew up in the years where the movies were being released in the cinemas? Like... <laughs> I, I'm t- like the, uh, pe- I've seen people saying, "Oh, how funny was the Empire Strikes Back joke in Civil War? It was terrible. It was yeah. the least funny thing that Spider Man said. Who, what teenager says, oh, do you guys know that really old film, the most famous film that was ever made? <laughs> it's not funny. Oh, you, you, oh, you've see, you've got Reven- Return of the Jedi in here to make a joke about how the third movie is terrible, and also by extension, this is the third movie in a new trilogy, and this is also terrible." Um, I, like there's so many movies do it, and I just want them to stop. 
Especially... Yeah. I really wish I had not mentioned Return of the Jedi. <laughs> as, as it's someone... especially when there is a film, a Star Wars movie in cinemas every year anyway. We get that those films exist. We get that you liked them when you were 13. Stop <laughs> referencing them. Yeah, I But mean... there's a, there are new Star Wars films out now, Joe, and so they're capitalising on... Uh, you know, younger audiences' awareness of the Star Wars films that maybe, you know, you're seeing a lot of it now. You weren't seeing it two or three years ago. I was. I was. It's always <laughs> okay. been there. It's always been there, Neil. It even happened in my... Even my favourite film of all time, Back to the Future, does it. I was current at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't filmmakers <laughs> in their 40s having... Oh God, are we in twenty twenty forty five going to be like dropping little civil war gags into our blockbusters? Then, like, oh, well, if it annoys you this much. I really hope so. It will annoy me, Neil. <laughs> Let the current in- generation enjoy what they enjoy. Let them make a reference to the Force Awakens. Don't make a reference to. Oh, okay, I've- I'm sorry. It bothers me more than it bothers everyone else. But stop infecting Star Wars into everything. No, I'm totally on board with this. I. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very happy they put a Star Trek episode in this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess you get you get both of them referenced at the very least. Yeah, Seb will be happy as soon as we get a Red Dwarf reference in one of the superhero films. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, it won't be too long. Um, well, there was one in uh, Civil War, if you recall. Um, Vision is basically Crichton in um, <laughs> yeah. in that in that episode the, where he turns up in a wig and a, and a load of robot. casual wear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll just we'll just keep we're doing the Red Dwarf references on the podcast. Um, one question I wanted to ask you, and this relates back to Apocalypse's plan. Just before we wrap this up, why does Apocalypse try and go into Professor X's body. What is it about Professor X's power that he finds so much more tempting than, than, than say, Magneto's? Could he? So he 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 buys into survival of the fittest, unless those people are so fit that he wants them for himself. Well, isn't that's where I don't know. Is Magneto is um, Charles not just the, the his power to kind of get into the minds of all mutants? Is that not his? ultimate key to taking over the world but Magneto seems like his overall key to turning up to taking over the world because as soon as Magneto stops manipulating the metal unless Apocalypse could have just done that himself the whole time in which case why is he asking why has he got Magneto as one of his horsemen I don't know I think the I think the metal thing is fairly limited I think once you've manipulated all the metal (laughs) you're kind of useless (laughs) so basically Magneto would have been cast aside but Professor X was someone whose power he could continue to use that's exactly my point okay I'm I'm willing to accept that that um, that explanation Neil and as as we bring this conversation to a close I have made one small concession on my view (laughs) of this film (laughs) Uh, but you so you guys average averagely impressed with it uh i don't i don't know that i'd say impressed it's a three-star film for me it's not appalling and it's not particularly great but i I think for your you know for some for us who are going to sit and talk about it for two hours on a podcast it's probably more fun for somebody who's just going to go and watch it on a friday night and then forget about it yeah, I almost wish I could. Uh, uh, maybe rewatching this in a year's time would be more fruitful, and I could just enjoy the surface of it and not be bothered. Because if I go in knowing the film's about nothing, 
maybe it won't hit me two thirds of the way through and I won't be so <laughs> like annoyed by it. If I just go, this film's about nothing. Enjoy these different mutants using their powers and jaunting around. And because no, there is there is fun in the first hour, and maybe there's fun in the second hour as well. And I just didn't notice because I'd got annoyed by then. Mm, and don't forget the third hour. <laughs> Um, James, are you are you on similar lines to Neil? Yeah, like I, for me, there were scenes I enjoyed individually. If I think about the story, it upsets me. I would be, I, I would just be happy if Brian Singer stopped doing this now. I like, I, I really would like Brian Singer to get a new hobby that, other than just pissing around with the X Men because he, like, it really bothers me that Fox essentially have control of. For a start, my favourite franchise, but also a franchise that could easily be the size of the MCU if only they knew how to work it. Yeah. Like, they must feel like idiots for sitting on this for ten years before Marvel came along and, like, made these superhero movies into the biggest fucking deal. And they still, like, they look at what Marvel are doing and they go, well, no, we're going to carry on with our lightly sci-fi-influenced sort of vaguely social commentary direction for these films and it's like well if you were serious you could have your own mcu and yet you just don't know how to work it i i just find it insane that a guy who left the x-men franchise went and made superman returns which i don't hate but was clearly not a success in terms of what was wanted to be done with a superman movie then made valkyrie and made jack the giant slayer and then they went Oh no no! Come back and you can have in, you can you can sit in charge of this enormous franchise all all over again. Like you can be our Zack Snyder, Joss Whedon, you know, and and he just gets to do it. And I feel like I feel like certainly with this the, the diminishing returns that you're getting from Brian Singer, um, and the, yeah, there is there's so much potential there. I I I still think you could make a good. I just love them to drop this idea of a 90s movie and just, you know, you've introduced these characters, show those characters progressing. Don't You don't need to jump a decade ahead every time, it, just because you've done it already. It would be nice to resolve the X-Men story, as in, like, maybe get to a point where peaceful coexistence has been meaningfully achieved. Give them a happy ending, start again. That's my dream. Star Trek it. Yeah. Do a next yeah. generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I just, I just, does, does no one involved, does no one involved in the X-Men movies remember how terrible the 90s were? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the 80s were bad, but the 90s were almost bereft of culture. Let's, let's skip past it and let's just do other things from now on. Stay in the 80s. The 80s were fun. I mean, they were bleak, but they were fun. Um... (laughs) Okay, well, um, I think we'll draw our discussion to a close there. Um, James, I believe you are... I mean, it's the perfect week for you to do this. You are going to give me two uh, comic book recommendations based on X-Men Apocalypse. Yes. Uh, The first one, this is uh, probably... It's one of those really X-Men stories. So I'm not entirely sure how much you're going to enjoy it, but it's something that I <laughs> something that I really like. Uh, it's called The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and it's a four-issue miniseries where Gene and Cyclops, having just got married, are projected 3,000 years into the future 
where they raise Cyclops's uh, child who was sent there to save him from Apocalypse. Cable, right? Yeah. Is it Cable? Yeah. Ah, oh, so, you a thing. Yeah, this is Cable's sort of origin story, essentially. Okay, uh, and, that sounds interesting uh, yeah, to Apocalypse me. Apocalypse is the main villain in it, and specifically, I thought this would be good because it has the Gene and Cyclops relationship, and also because I'm fairly sure this was the place where they first introduced the idea that Apocalypse switches bodies to survive. Right, okay. So you get that element from the film as well. Okay, cool. So I've got an Apocalypse story, which is also going to give me bonus knowledge ahead of this Deadpool sequel um, and is going to and he's going to give me some Cyclops and Jean Grey okay that sounds fun uh, what about your other recommendation is it more X-Men or is it something else entirely uh, it is more X-Men um, it's a more recent uh, story it's probably from I say recent it's probably from about five years ago now but uh, it's Uncanny X-Force Volume 1 uh, The Apocalypse Solution and I've chosen this Partly because it's a story about what happens after you defeat Apocalypse, like what becomes of his legacy. Um, And also because it's got Archangel, Psylocke and Deadpool in. Okay. So it's a bunch of characters you're familiar with uh, and a story about people trying to resurrect Apocalypse and them trying to stop him. Okay. That That sounds fun as well. And that's a more recent one, is it? I take it the first recommendation is 90s? Yeah, yeah. Mid-90s. Yeah, and then this is this is from a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that should be some fun X Men to catch up on ahead of uh, next week's minisode. Um, brilliant. Okay, well we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. Um, and this week, um, James, I think. Well, I don't know. You you might both be at a disadvantage here, but different kinds of disadvantage. Um, Neil is um, pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, the go-to guy when it comes to anything Bond. Um, Neil, you you adore James Bond and everything about him, right? Yeah, uh, slightly less so since I saw Spectre, I have to say. <laughs> a, a small part of me died yep. after I saw that film. But yeah, by and large... Bond is the man. Yeah, uh, you've even how many how many bonds have you met at this at this point? How many how many bonds have you te- checked uh, off your I've, list? I've, I've met I've met four of the six bonds. Who's you've still got Connery and Lazenby to go? Is that right? Yeah, I'm not holding out much hope for meeting either of them. Um, Lazenby, by all accounts, will charge you a fortune just to look at him, and Connery is probably on his deathbed in the Bahamas somewhere. Well, Neil, could you kickstart? Meet you meeting George Lazenby because if we can pay for it, I think there's enough people in the internet who would be happy to contribute to you. <laughs> you think I can set up a Kickstarter for me to meet George Lazenby? I genuinely think you could. <laughs> okay, I would. If it doesn't I would out, contribute. You can stump up the rest of the cash. I mean, I'd give you like a fiver. I don't know how much wow. Lazenby charges. Probably more yeah, than that. It's, it's about two hundred pounds for like uh, long glare. I mean that that would be enough. He's a sexy man. Um, I so. Uh, so um, I should probably actually explain what the pitch is. So, uh, given Neil's deep and adoring love of all things Bond, I want to know what superhero roles you would cast the former James Bonds in. Um, so you can pick as many or as few of these as you like. And as Neil asked me to clarify earlier, they can be real superhero roles, or they can be roles that you are right that you are inventing yourself to give to the former Bonds. So we've got um, we've got Connery, of course, Roger Moore, Lazenby, Timothy Dalton, 
Pierce Brosnan and um, Daniel Craig and um, someone else soon, presumably. Um, but so you, I want to know which superhero roles you'd cast those former Bonds in. So James, you're at the disadvantage of not knowing the Bonds that well. <laughs> and Neil, you're at the disadvantage of not knowing superheroes as well. Um, but well, let, let's let's see who comes out on top. And um, we'll, we'll save the guest to last. James, I'll come to you first. What superhero roles would you cast those former Bonds in now? I mean, I'm very bad at fan casting. Uh, so I've only got two suggestions, really. Um, one, for Sean Connery, I would like to see him play the adult, adult version of Banshee. <laughs> Partly because I'd like to see Which him try Banshee? doing an Irish he's, Banshee. He's is the, the screamy Irish one guy. from First Class. Yeah. Screamy Irish oh, yeah, guy yeah, from yeah, First Class. Who wasn't like, Irish in the film, though? Well, he could be in the when he's grown up. He could grow into an Irish person. <laughs> Sean Connery Scottish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you lost me. <laughs> They're all Celts. <laughs> no I just I like the, having seen what Sean Connery does with like say a Russian accent I want to see what he does with an Irish one James doing his best to alienate our Scotch listeners and, yeah, I, and yes Scottish listeners that was intentional um, <laughs> have you have you got anything else James or have you are you just leaving that open goal there for Neil uh, no I've got I'd like to see Daniel Craig as Loki because I think him and Tom Hiddleston should swap roles <laughs> well, just just when when Hiddleston inevitably and uh, the terrible decision is made to give him the Bond job, you just oh, you I just think he'd be a Craig great in. Bond. Like he'd be a good sort of very different but entertaining Bond. I imagine you must have seen the Night Manager. No. <laughs> well, there you go then. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm not on board with Hiddleston. James, Bond, this though. might be our last conversation together ever. <laughs> First and last. <laughs> Um, Neil, can you beat that? Well, I thought we were taking this quite seriously, so I've actually spent quite a long time <laughs> I'm, on uh, I'm looking forward casting, to this. Sorry, I, I, never, <laughs> I never take it seriously. I should have warned you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your apologies all very well, James, but you know, here we are at the end of the podcast and, uh, in this situation. Yeah. So I had to make up a superhero for Sean Connery. Uh, Sean Connery is Hootsman. <laughs> which is like a it's like a it's like a scottish joke on a on a something man i uh, do i need to explain that uh, i i he's like a scot i just i'm just fearing that we have like it between the two of you we have completely alienated everyone north of the wall well that's fine <laughs> um he's a scottish superhero obviously and he fights for uh independence and the scottish way of life <laughs> but he does it from a far off secret base in the bahamas um, that's. Um, I think you could get Connery for that. George Lazenby. Um, I did a bit of research into superhero lore, and I understand that Green Lantern uh, has a weakness for anything wooden. We need Seb here for this, but I think that he, uh, I think one of the versions of Green Lantern was weak to wood. Yeah. Right. Good. Let's stick to that version because that's basically where I'm going with this. George Lazenby is a Green Lantern villain because. Uh, he is uh, quite wooden. I feel like I've over-explained this and ruined the joke a little bit. I don't know what I'd, I don't know what I'd call him. Wardrobe man. I don't know. Timothy Dalton. I'm not. Timothy Dalton's kind of a superhero already, right? Yeah. I think we can all agree yeah. on that. And I, I, I just thought maybe is James Bond a superhero? Yes. He's invincible, right? Yep. And he's got an adamantium liver. 
He's got an Timothy Dalton is just James Bond. He's a superhero. I want to see a James Bond film uh, where Bond is like 65 and has to come out of retirement and do some shit. And I want Timothy Dalton to play that character right now. Oh, oh yeah. I'm, no, 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 no. I'm very okay. on board with that. I'm very. I'm just. I'm just imagining that if they announced this, the next Bond was Timothy Dalton, then I'd probably just to have a massive accident in my trousers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Pier- uh, Pierce Brosnan, I think. So here's a question, right? How old do we think Wolverine is in um, Days of Future Past when he's the, the oldest we've seen him in the films? I'd say he's probably about 120 by that point. So yeah. I would like Pierce Brosnan to play Wolverine, aged about 200. Like, old man Logan chilling out. Yeah, old man Logan. Some big cigars and then going mental. That's a, that's a thing in the comics. Uh, it's also almost what we're expecting Hugh Jackman to be doing in the Wolverine Three, playing an old man Logan. Yeah, that just leaves Roger Moore and Daniel Craig, who I would obviously cast as Batman and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who would. I was going to say I don't know which way round would be film where Roger Moore plays Batman and Daniel Craig plays Robin. My idea for this, I came up with my answer to this halfway through the podcast when you mentioned Mister Sinister. James, because I was thinking, um, like, I googled that character and saw what he looked like, and his nightmarish. I think you could. I think, I think Dalton could ham up wonderfully for that role, and especially if Mister Sinister found God, and Timothy Dalton is Minister Sinister. (laughs) Hey, right? Would that work? I mean, I'd give you the points, but. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna carry on the trend of about the past three months and give the win to not James, uh, just <laughs> just 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 because um, I, I feel like Neil alienated our Scottish listeners less. And um, I tried. You see, yeah. this is see Neil. This is why I don't take it seriously because even when you do, you lose. <laughs> I promise, if you come up with a serious answer, I will think long and hard about it before I award the win to Seb. <laughs> But Neil, you win the pitch this week, and Woo-hoo. mostly just Dalton coming back as Bond again. Yeah, awesome. Uh, um, well, yeah, I think that is well that that is definitely it for this week. Um, Neil, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast this week. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, is there anything you want to plug, or do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you and your work online? <laughs> yeah, if you want to abuse me on Twitter, I am at Incredible Suit. Uh, and if you want to read the shit that I put on the internet, you can go to theincrediblesuit.com. Yep, so that's where you can find the excellent Neil on the internet. Um, and I recommend that you do. Um, but that is it for this week's show. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. You can support us by heading to patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. We will be through to Patreon backers very soon with news of what our live commentary will be um, after reaching that landmark on our Patreon. Um, also, don't forget the competition that we mentioned at the top of the podcast. If you want to enter, our competition to win some Dark Bunny Tees merch, just head to our Twitter feed, at CU underscore podcast, the tweet pinned to the top quote that tweet, tell us what your favourite design is on the Dark Bunny Tees website and you will be entered for a chance to win. You can also get in touch with us as well as on that Twitter feed on uh, Facebook or you can send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.
The fate for the world is in our hands. The world. So M tricked you. He brought you all together and you walked straight into his trap. But the way that I see it, that's the part he did wrong. He brought you together. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen.